Hello and welcome to Hardly Flowering. It's me, Catherine, and today I am going to be talking about two different things and connecting them. That makes no sense. I'm going to be talking about lust and spiritual contemplation, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, and I'm going to be referencing a talk given by Father Andrew Hofer at the Thomistic Institute to do that. And then I'm going to be making connections between the things that um, St. Thomas Aquinas and Father Hofer have to say, and I'm going to be making those connections to a novel by Rumor Godden, and it, the novel is entitled Five for Sorrow, Ten for Joy. So another side note before I start, I guess, this is my third time trying to record this because, oh my gosh, I just keep saying the wrong words, but this is it. I'm just not recording it again, so I'm going to just apologize in advance for all the mistakes I will 100% make subsequently to this moment. Okay, so to begin, um, I guess what I should do first is just recommend that lecture again given by Father Hofer. The link will be in the description. The title of it is Lost in Spiritual Contemplation according to St. Thomas Aquinas. It is an amazing talk, absolutely worth every second of listening to it. Please go, just pause this leave me. Go listen to that talk and then eventually hopefully come back, I guess. Um, but in case you do not have time and just to make this episode kind of coherent, I am going to do my little best to summarize um, everything that Father Hofer said, at least enough to kind of get the comparison that I'm trying to make here. So the overall concept of the talk that is interesting to me for today's podcast is how um, Father Hofer is comparing the ways in which the pleasures that we seek in lust fall short of and are in many ways poor substitutions for the pleasure that is actually to be obtained from spiritual contemplation. And this is an idea that St. Thomas Aquinas discusses and supports um, not only in the Summa at various points, especially in his, his discussion of lust and also his discussion of pleasure or delight. Um, I think I mentioned that actually in one of my earlier episodes, uh, the one on delight. But, you know, it's basically the whole point is even though St. Thomas Aquinas may not use the term spiritual contemplation often, he is defining and thinking about these ideas. So the first thing that I guess I will start with are some quotes from, from the scripture that Father mentions, that St. Thomas mentions, and that seemed to me to be pretty relevant to our discussion today. So the first one is from Sirach um, 32 verses 14 through 15. It says, Before a storm go with lightning, and before shamefacedness goes, go with favor, and for thy reverence good grace shall come to thee. And at the time of rising, be not slack, but be first to run home to thy house, and there withdraw thyself, and there take thy pastime. And so this is something um, that St. Thomas references, right, when he's discussing wisdom and the contemplation of wisdom, and especially that last part, right, um, withdraw thyself, and there take thy pastime. And so this um, idea of going into a quiet place where you can be alone, right? Your home, as mentioned in the verse. And just being there in contemplation is essential, right? To both St. Thomas's understanding and what we're going to be talking about later in the novel. 
So this idea that solitude is something positive. It's something that I think we really struggle with today. Firstly, because when are we ever alone? I mean, like actually alone, like truly, like truly alone. No one has the ability to contact you. You do not have the ability to contact anyone. Times where you can be absolutely quiet. And I mean, it's very sad. I'm just thinking for myself, like your phone is everywhere, everywhere with you, right? Like I've been, I've been trying to not bring my phone into church with me just because I know that in the back of my brain, like there's, there's just the knowledge or the slight fear that it'll go off and I'll be the ringtone that interrupts the consecration. But that's so sad. Like that's horrible. I'm never alone. I need to be able to be in that quiet place. And I also think it's really important to remember or just interesting, right? That in this verse, it says thy house, right? That's the place where you should be withdrawing yourself to take your pastime, which hopefully will be contemplating wisdom. So that your home should be a place where you can be alone. Food for thought. I, I need to do that. I am definitely not there yet. Okay, so that's the first one. Um, and then the second quotation I wanted to mention, and again, both Father and Thomas Aquinas mention, is from the Book of Wisdom, chapter 8. It's verse, um, I think St. Thomas only talks about verse 16, but I just wanted to read a few extra because I think they're really beautiful. So I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. So it says, When I go into my house, I shall repose myself with her. For her conversation hath no bitterness, nor her company any tediousness, but joy and gladness. Thinking these things with myself, and pondering them in my heart, that to be allied to wisdom is immortality, and that there is great delight in her friendship, and inexhaustible riches in the works of her hands, and in the exercise of conference with her, wisdom, and the glory in the communication of her words, I went about seeking that I might take her to myself. So those, that verse, um, especially in the beginning, like her conversation hath no bitterness, her being wisdom, right? So when we're thinking about spiritual contemplation, contemplation of spiritual things, of God, of true wisdom, you know, living a beautiful life, when we're contemplating, thinking on those things, holding them in our minds, um, this, these verses tell us that that should be something sweet, right? This isn't tedious, this isn't bitter, but it's filled with joy and gladness. And again, that's something that we don't always necessarily experience, but we know should be the case in a way, right? Like there is a true joy and gladness, right? This sense of just happiness, right? Like a child playing, which is actually something later that St. Thomas gets into. This is what we should be experiencing when we are pursuing spiritual contemplation. And now this isn't to this reminds me of actually another talk I was listening to, but it's not to say in any way that, you know, you're supposed to just go to adoration, kneel there, and then just feel all this crazy sense of emotional joy. Not that at all, right? Um, St. Thomas would be the first to say your emotions are not necessarily an indicator of your spiritual state. So, but what you need to recognize is the sort of the the quiet and steady but very real joy that comes from living a life of grace and of pursuing truth, right? And that's the kind of 
conversation that you're supposed to be into with wisdom, the conversation that hath no bitterness or tediousness. Okay, so uh, I got so off topic there already. Oh my gosh. All right, back to the talk. Um, so Father also talks about, I guess this isn't too off topic. Father also talks about the various types of appetites, right? I'm not going to get into that. He makes, he does a great job relating all the amazing distinctions that St. Thomas makes. Please just listen to the real talk. Do not listen to me. Um, but the one thing I will say is the concupiscible appetite of lust, right? That St. Thomas talks about that in several places in the Summa and elsewhere. Um, and St. Thomas says that it is a vehement pleasure, right? He acknowledges the sort of visceral response to that, but he says it's short-lived and ultimately it's corruptible. And St. Thomas contrasts that with the intellectual pleasure, right? The pleasure from the intellect and the will, which is a sort of an intellectual appetite, um, of contemplation, which is an incorporeal good and therefore is incorruptible. And that's just a thought I wanted to pause on. It's something that struck me when I was listening to the talk. Um, the, the joys that are incorruptible, those are the ones that not only last, but those are the ones that you can pursue for their own sake, right? Um, and St. Thomas makes this distinction as well, especially when he's talking about contemplation in re regards to play, right? He actually uses the verb for play at one point. Um, th just this sense of of joy and doing something for its own sake because of the joy that it brings to you. And that's the real benefit of an incorruptible good, right? Something that will give you that same joy that you that you know could experience or a child would experience when playing, but something that will last and something that can't be taken away because there's it's incorruptible. There's no no, no physical object you could actually take away. Um, okay, so before I butcher any more of the summary, it's another something that Father stresses in the talk, but something that I think we should all remember, especially me, because I need to do this. Uh, so Thomas says that it is the duty of everyone, right? It's it's for for all to pursue spiritual contemplation, not just people pursuing a religious life, not just people who are, you know, supposedly really holy. I mean, obviously we should all be striving for holiness at all times, but you know what I mean? There are some people where you're just like, well, they're just amazing and they're just better than me. So I'm sure their meditations are doing great, but no, it's for everyone, right? Even people who aren't intellectual or don't want to read St. Thomas, right? He says that the joys of contemplation are open to all. So that is actually a kind of a decent segue into what I'm going to be talking about next, which is the novel by Rumor Godden, Five for Sorrow, Ten for Joy. Um, so this novel, it's not super popular. I have no idea why, because it's amazing. I loved it. I cried so, so much. I was crying and laughing like half the time, <laughs> pretty equally, I would say. Not that that's a mark of a good book, but I w let's just say I was deeply engaged in the text at all times. Um, so in this in this book, which was published in 1978, it's a very short novel. I don't know, let me see. How many pages does my coffee even have? It's like very thin when you hold it. I'm bad with estimating pages. Okay, it's like maybe 200. It's like 200 pages, which is not it's not that long, especially because the way that it's structured, it's, it's a sort of a back and forth style, right? So there's no long chapters. It's just a few paragraphs and then there's like a little line and then a few paragraphs. So it's very easy to read short chunks of it if you don't have a lot of time to sit down with it. So I guess before, I'm going to give you 
some spoilers. I'm just going to kind of summarize the plot very briefly. Um, yeah, you're unlikely to pause this and read the whole novel, but if you want to do that, go for it. Uh, the title in itself is a reference to the rosary, right? Five for sorrow, ten for joy, referring to the mysteries of the rosary. Um, and th that is a constant theme throughout the novel, right? So the the story, I would say, and the reason that I'm comparing it to Father's talk about lust and contemplation and Thomas Aquinas is because it's the journey of a soul, right? One, There's one particular main character, Elise, who we follow, Elizabeth, Liz, she's many different names, but... I'm just going to call her that one. Um, and she is a, a British girl who is kind of left to her own devices in Paris, right? On the night of the liberation after World War II. And she kind of falls in with this guy, Patrice, and she's in the, with the wrong company. Long story short, she becomes a prostitute. They, things don't go super well on many different levels. And then she's kind of like running this basically house of prostitution for Patrice then but but through it all weirdly Lise is experiencing a deep introspective and emotional life right we just kind of get the feeling that's the sort of person she is she's very sort of naturally inclined towards meditation I guess is the best way we could say it even though she's doing all of these things she reflects and she's very aware of things that are going on around her and she has this deep personal in interior life. So again, long story short, there's a massive scandal where Patrice is now pursuing this younger girl, Vivi, who Lise is kind of trying to take under her wing and give the best to, I guess. Lise is trying to help Vivi make a life for herself, but all Vivi wants is basically the pleasures of lust, as Wesley Thomas would say. And so... Vivi runs away and gets married, hates her husband, hates her child. Things go horribly, but Lise really, really wants this marriage to work for Vivi. And so she keeps trying to help this marriage work, even though Vivi is the worst and is ungrateful and just so annoying. I really dislike that character. Um, but then Patrice, right, the guy who's owning this house of prostitution and who was Vivi's previous lover, finds out where she, Vivi and her husband live he goes there to try and like get Vivi back. Lise is absolutely not having that because she wants she wants to preserve, I guess, the sanctity of the marriage insofar as it exists, but she wants that stability. She wants that happy ending. Not only for Lise, but in a weird way for herself. Um So, yeah, basically there's this big dramatic scene. Lise murders Patrice. She just shoots him. He's dead. Then obviously Lise gets arrested, not only for murder, but also kind of for prostitution. It's hard to tell what the charges exactly are. She gets sentenced to jail, right? And so she's in this women's prison, which is, again, also not, it's, it's the worst. It's not a good place to be. But when she's in jail, she meets this order of nuns, the Sisters of Bethany, who do prison work. And so the sisters are visiting her and they connect with Lise and she tells them her story. She tells them who she is and they tell her about God. And basically they're kind of teaching her spiritual contemplation. And it, it brings about this conversion in her life. And you can just see grace touch her. And 
and it's absolutely beautiful. And then it turns out she has a vocation, right? And so then she joins this order of nuns, the Sisters of Bethany. They are welcoming, absolutely wonderful. All of those, their characters are just beautiful, right? And then we see Lise learning the ways of spiritual contemplation. And she learns about you know, love and God and a different type of love from the one she had learned about before. So it ends kind of there. I'm not going to go into too much more detail. There's a lot of subplots that are happening. It's hard, it's hard to explain because the plot is also happening at the same time. So the story is written in a kind of flash forward flashback. As I was mentioning before, there's like a few paragraphs and that'll be like Lisa's life as a prostitute. Then there'll be a few paragraphs and be like, oh, now she's a nun. Then it'll be kind of back and forth. But I didn't find it confusing necessarily, right? Like, because the story is definitely written in the present where Lisa is a nun and she is relating these stories to her confessor or to herself, right? Introspecting on them or relating to them to the other sisters. But it's a kind of a constant flashback, flash to the present style. So that kind of, to me, adds to the deeply personal feel and the introspective nature of the story. And so I guess the best way for me to demonstrate the ways in which this story kind of works, I'm just going to read a few passages and comment on them. So the first one I want to read is near the beginning of the book. So this is where we're first getting a feel for who the characters are, what the story is about. We've met the chaplain, Father Mark, and then we meet some of the sisters. And Lisa's kind of pointed out, but not necessarily. We don't really know she's going to be the main character yet. But we do know from from almost the first, this is like, like the third page or something, that this is a story about grace. This is a story about God working in souls of women who needed him, right? And finding that love and finding that the peace and the joy of spiritual contemplation. So here's the first quote that I'm going to read. Towards the end of Vespers came, as it always did, the Magnificat, the Virgin Mary's words of exultation. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the humility of his handmaid, for behold, he that is mighty hath done great things to me, and in me, and me, me, me. Another echo glorified that ran through the ranks of nuns. So that's the end of the quote. And this is something, the Magnificat is something that um, Godin returns to over and over again in the novel at various points. Like the Magnificat and the Rosary are big themes that she uses to kind of weave into her story. Uh, but this one I particularly love because right at the beginning we see not only, we have this beautiful image of Our Lady, right? And her words of exultation at the Magnificat and God doing great things to her. But then we have that echo, right? Along each each of the nuns who's singing this in Vespers also can relate very personally to that and say, yes, also me. That was what happened to me. That was what happened to me and me and me. And God working, gl- being glorified in each soul. Each woman who is here has a different story and it's something beautiful. So we almost get the feeling even, you know, at the beginning of the novel, we could have written this novel about any of them, right? Any of the sisters here, which is a happened to choose least, but honestly, they all have their own wonderful and beautiful story of grace. So then, um, you know, there's a lot of flashing back and flashing forward, but what I would like to focus on now is not necessarily the, the plot so much, because I think it's, the conversion is kind of clear enough, right? We have this character who is 
experiencing the pleasures of lust and then she learns about the spiritual pleasures of contemplation and she finds that in spiritual contemplation she she actually discovers all of the joys that she was seeking for in those pleasures of lust that lust that she was experiencing earlier so i'm just going to kind of leave that there it's not there's not too much more to say, right? Like I'm assuming you can kind of just piece that together a little bit. But one thing that I wanted to draw attention to is the absolutely beautiful way in which um, Godin describes this experience of spiritual contemplation. And obviously it's from the perspective of the character who has had all these things happen to her. So there's a lot of growing going on throughout the novel. Um, But I'll just read a few of these, which will hopefully inspire you to read the whole book. So this is, there's a few paragraphs here. This is right after Lise joins the convent, right? So she's just come out of prison, which is a very different type of solitude and isolation. And at first she's kind of concerned that the solitude of a convent or adoration, for example, will bring back bad memories of that. But she quickly finds that's not the case. And then we have this little couple paragraph section where she is like kind of just reflecting on how different and how beautiful it is. So, the convent day began at six with the caller's knock. Then came half an hour's silent meditation for most of the nuns in the chapel, but Lise made hers in the garden unless the rain was too hard. It rains so much, said Sir Theodore. That's why the grapes from our vines are so good. Not all the aspirants got up as early. Some slept, some slept on, even through lauds, until mass at half-past seven. They had to get up then. After all, they are here to take things seriously. And then the sacristan, having cleared the altar, brought in the monstrance. The priest put in the host, and adoration began. No one could open the doors except when the clock chimed the quarters, or at the half-hours on which the watch was relieved. And Lise had never known anything as still and as fulfilling as those half-hours. The Lord passed by, and a great strong wind rent the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks, But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice, and it was so. Over and over again Lise thought of that passage. It was in this quiet that she learned the meaning of forgetting, or transcending as she could call it now, in which or what she could lose herself surrender okay and then it goes on it's absolutely beautiful there's oh i'm sure you could hear my dog barking in the background well ignore him think about the absolutely beautiful passage um but yeah so that after that god goes on for a while and she does what she does best as an author if you haven't read her other books i highly recommend them she's just so beautiful her sentences are beautiful and she's describing um all the different sounds right those quiet little sounds of the convent and the quiet little sounds of kneeling in adoration. And it's just something that kind of draws you into that quiet, introspective feeling, right? You feel as though you're there with Lise and you feel as though you are experiencing this transcending with her. Um, Okay, so then another passage. This one, I'm gonna have to wrap up soon, I guess. How long have I been talking? Yeah, it's long. (laughs) I'll just read one more passage and then we'll kind of close there. So. The book has a very dramatic ending, which I'm not going to reveal all of because 
it's spoilers and also it would take a really long time to explain how we got here but basically one of the nuns is murdered by Vivi at the end so we're not gonna get too much into that but while this murder is happening Lise is kneeling again at adoration and it she just describes again her well firstly she's thinking about our lady with whom she is having a kind of complex relationship I guess right that's her acceptance of the Virgin Mary is her her final step towards peace so that's been going on in the background she's also trying very hard to to experience the joys of spiritual contemplation but it's not necessarily going very well for her in this moment and then she finally breaks through so I just wanted to to read a few of those passages where God is describing the joys of contemplation. Uh, there we go. Let me see, where should I start? I don't want to read too long. Okay. This was what least still loved best, to be alone in the chapel, alone with him, to be for a few minutes really like Mary Magdalene, who, ignoring everything else, chose that better part to sit at his feet and hear him. For Lisa, it could usually only be half an hour. One of the others would come and relieve her. Most days it was not a relief, but an interruption, because sometimes Lisa would lose herself utterly, only for a moment, or what seemed to be a moment. She found, often to her surprise, it had been the whole half hour. Then the tap on her shoulder came as a painful shock. She had soared, there was no other way to put it, into a nothingness, a mist, the cloud of unknowing in the book of all books she loved best to read. A cloud, but perhaps one day, some day, she would pierce it and be truly lost into infinity. And she was finding more and more the way to that was not through prayers and thought. It seemed simply to be the repeating of one word. Just as the book said, someone burning to death does not use sentences but help or fire, so one word seems to deliver me, thought Lise. Sometimes Lord or Seigneur, sometimes simply love. Often even that one word gave way to silence and oblivion. Then no sound or whisper reached her. Not the ticking of the clock, the door opening quietly, or through the window, the birds in the garden, a car on the road, nothing. It was only afterwards when she tried to stand up and found herself stiff that she knew how still, even rigid, she had been. It took time to bring herself back. So that was an absolutely beautiful passage. And then after Lisa's sort of been in this state of meditation, she smells blood and then finds the body of the other sister. There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm not going to get into that too much. But the one thing that I love about this novel is there are these beautiful passages, like the ones I've been reading to you, about the joys of spiritual contemplation, which absolutely blow away any description of the joys of lust that we are also, they're interspersed with throughout the novel. So you get that firsthand contrast right from the perspective of this character someone who's tried both the delights of lust and the delights of spiritual contemplation and it just reaffirms in a really beautiful way everything that saint thomas teaches about this but another really interesting thing that makes it more approachable is we get to see lisa's journey to this level of spiritual contemplation right it's not like she just turns up at the convent kneels down one day and then is suddenly transported into like the intense glory of God. No, no, no. It's a long and hard road. And we get to see her struggle through that in a way that I find at least really encouraging. And again, beautiful, right? Like the journey is in itself a beautiful thing. 
So I guess that's where I'm going to end for today. But definitely read the book if you can and also listen to Father Hofer's talk. And yeah, I guess that's it. I'll see you again next time.